Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. I uh, got something a little bit different for you all today. Uh, for many of you who follow this channel, you'll know that there is a program that uh, I supposedly do every once in a while called From Claremont to Claremont, an X-Men podcast, which looks at, uh, well, more X-Men comics uh, starting in 1991. Uh, the third episode of that program I've been promising um, for uh, ever at this point. Um, I'm still... Still a few uh, few segments short on getting this thing done, but today I wanted to share with you all a, a bit of a sneak preview of that episode uh, that is, I hope, still forthcoming. Well, well I guess we'll, we'll, we'll hope. <laughs> so uh, today, uh, we'll call this uh, From Claremont to Claremont episode 3A, perhaps, uh, where me and Jody Yarden are going to discuss the final issue of the Chris Claremont run in X-Men Volume 2, Number 3. And uh, after we talk about the comic, um, one of the things I like to include in From Claremont to Claremont is, uh, is something I call a hook, you know, just a little little personal insight into all the hosts to, uh, I don't know, maybe add a little bit of flavor uh, to differentiate the show from uh, just talking about comics, I guess. And this time out... All the hosts were kind enough to share with me the the soundtrack of their lives. And this is a very fun conversation that, uh, as I release these bits, you'll, you'll hear more and more uh, of these soundtracks. And uh, really can't, can't emphasize enough how fun a conversation that is with, uh, with your friends. So if anybody out there wants to share the soundtrack of their lives with us, uh, please feel free to do so. I would love to hear... Uh, I'd love to hear the songs that make you tick. So, um... I'm going to send it over to the theme right now, and then uh, me and Jody will talk about X-Men Volume 2, Number 3, and uh, the soundtrack of his life, and then we'll call it a day. Thank you all so much for listening, I hope you enjoy. See ya. Alrighty, it's time to finally wrap up the how many year run of Chris Claremont. It was a 16 years on the X-Men, I believe, here. Uh, it all comes to an end, and uh, it might just come to an end with a, with a bit of a whimper. I think we're going to find out here. <laughs> um, this is X-Men, Volume 2, Number 3. Had a December 1991 cover date. Uh, everything we talk about today will have a December 1991 cover date. Story is called Fallout by, of course, Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. Inks Scott Williams, lead is Tom Orzakowski, colors Joe Rosas, editor Bob Harris, the chief is Tom DeFalco. This one had a $1 USD cover price, a buck 25 in Canada, 65p in the UK. And uh, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this one went on sale on October 15th, 1991. So you want to tell them a little bit about the final cover of the Chris Claremont era? Absolutely, Chris. Thanks for having me on again. It's, uh... Oh, yes. I'm with Jody, of course. It's been so long <laughs> since I've done this, I forgot how to introduce people. So, yes, this is, of course, our good friend Jody, who will uh, be doing all of the X-Men Volume 2s with us. Uh, I am so sorry for forgetting that. I'm no, really out of practice no, here. Nobody's here for me anyways. They're here <laughs> for you, and they're here to, he they're here, to hear about the... Uh, uh, the, the acolytes. That's why people are here. They're not here we for wanna, me. We want to know about Mellencamp. Yes. Yeah, we want to know about Mellencamp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on our cover, our brainwashed blue team just battle with our gold team. And this is just, Chris, this is just another fantastic Jim Lee cover. Yep. But, I mean, at this point, and even since then, there pretty much aren't all of them. Oh, for sure. Uh, it's funny, you know, you have the, the, gold, the gold team, the blue team doing battle here. But it's funny because Forge and Banshee uh, didn't they didn't make the cut. They're not on nope. the cover. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure nobody else has even probably noticed that before. Like, uh, you know, they're not uh, they're not, they're the mid carters. They're not they're not the top tier guys bringing bringing in the bucks. So it's weird because since I came into the X Men around this time, this really informed my opinion of Forge and Banshee as just background players. Pretty much, yep. Yeah. Uh, they they never felt like full fledged you know uh, X Men and. Uh, 
I, I, I figure if I would have come into the uh, to the hobby maybe a half decade before, I might have a different opinion on that. Uh, maybe not with Banshee, since he was always kind of the old man on the team. But uh, <laughs> but with Forge, he was he was around and he was uh, he was doing stuff. But here they just feel like uh, they feel like they're just there to hang out with Professor X and play chess. This is kind of a last this era, maybe within the next year or two. Um, it's kind of like the last gasp for Forge because. He, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I haven't really been keeping up on things here pretty much the last 10, 15 years or so. But, I mean, I know he's made some appearances in, what, X-Force, I believe he was a member of. He was with X-Factor. X, um, okay. Because he, he ran off, well, he will be running off with uh, Mystique, and then he'll wind up being like a liaison for the government with X-Factor. Um, after that, I mean, uh, so so many juggling acts have been done with the X-Men. I, I think... I think like Banshee died during uh during like the the Deadly Genesis yes, uh, yes. storyline, but now he then he came back as like a Black Lantern a mutant. Yes, then, yes, I've, I've read char- a little bit of that, I believe. So yeah, it's very he was, a, he was a horseman, and now he I think he might actually just be back now. For all I know, they're they're doing that a lot these days with the right. X Men. They're they're kind of. They're literally growing them in pods. So. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, I'm at the beginning of stages of that. Yes. Like that. The nicest thing I can say about Forge is that, in my opinion, he had one of the coolest Toy Biz figures. He did. <laughs> you could see through his leg and his, his wrist, yeah. Yeah, he had a quick draw. You, you <laughs> he know, he'd push the button on his back, or his, his, leg, his arm flipped up. That's all I yes. remember. Yeah, because he had his pistol, and he, he, took it, he flung it out of the holster, yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, he for, he did. He did indeed. Now, for this issue, um, we were looking for solicits like we always do and uh, weren't able to find one. But we found something which uh, I think we discussed last episode, uh, but that was 100 years ago. So I don't think anyone remembers. Um, this was from Wizard Magazine number three. And uh, we get a solicit for this. Well, we think it's for this book. Um, it says X-Men number three on it. That's about all we've got. Uh, artist Jim Lee, writers Chris Claremont and Jim Lee, one dollar. The solicit reads as follows: The X-Men's trip to the Soviet Union uh, has exa- hasn't exactly been a vacation. Why has a mystery from the X-Men's past become such a huge threat? And how does Magneto fit in? Russia may be Colossus's hometown. <laughs> the hometown of yep, go Russia. Hometown of Russia. Mm-hmm. It's like that's like Bret Hart not being able to lose anywhere in Canada. That's yeah. just Canada's hometown. <laughs> um, so so we know Russia is Colossus's hometown, but it's Wolverine who has all the answers about the X Men's new deadly foe, Omega Red. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope. And then we have this line: John Byrne continues to write this story with the pizzazz that made the Uncanny X Men famous so many years ago. The credits said Chris Claremont and Jim. Yes. Lee. Yes. <laughs> uh, with Jim Lee's red hot artwork, Marvel's main mutant comic continues to heat up the charts with huge sales. So that's the only, the, you know what? That last sentence is the only accurate part of the entire. That's uh, it. Set. That's it. it. It's funny. I've been, I've been like digging through, um, old magazines of late. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I think the first episode of from Claremont to Claremont, there was a, there was a, a uh, an interview with Chris Claremont in the issue of Wizard Magazine, uh, Wizard Number Two, and at the end of it, I mean, the whole interview is him talking about how excited he is for this new, you know, chapter in the X Men's life and then this new chapter in his career, and then it ends with a little blurb that says, uh, "Well, this might be the last time you hear Chris Claremont talk about this because he quit the book." <laughs> I found two more. I found one in Comic Spire's Guide and I found one in Comic Interview. Same thing. Uh, where Claremont was all gung ho about his new teams and uh, the new, the, you know, the new series and working with Claire, working with Lee and working with Bertasio. And uh, at the end of both of them, there was a little blurb that said, this might be the last time you hear Chris Claremont talk about the X-Men because he just quit the book. <laughs> and they, they all ended with, we, we, we reached out to him to see if he wanted to, you know, update his uh, interview and he politely declined. So uh, I, for all we know, I mean, maybe this was going to be, you know, uh, issue three, maybe issue three, they were going to move Omega right into it and uh, and maybe just keep the Magneto thing bubbling in the background. That is a very Claremontian thing to do. Mm -hmm. So maybe. And as we get deeper into this issue, we're going to discuss that uh, there is there, there comes a pivot point in this issue where 
you have a really nice pace and then it really just feels like like a you know a bag of hammers falling down the stairs just everything <laughs> everything kind of compresses and just has to end before we run out of pages right so for all we know maybe this first part was going to be in here and then maybe we were going to see some stuff with russia maybe we were just gonna let this kind of bubble um so for all we know, Wizard has the right solicit, and we're just making fun of it because we have hindsight. <laughs> Maybe they plan on John Bird doing something in this, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there, that one. You got me. I can't. I can't <laughs> no prize that one. Yeah. <laughs> so how about you walk us into uh, into this uh, third issue of uh, the second volume of X Men? Absolutely. When we last left Team Blue, they had just informed Xavier of their plans to join Magneto and his cause, the result of brainwashing, unbeknownst to Xavier, via the same genetic tinkering that Moira McTaggart had performed on Magneto when he'd been transformed into a baby. You remember? I, I hope, hopefully, if you've listened to the last episode, you remember all the business about turning Magneto into a baby. Yes. <laughs> Team Gold, back at the X Mansion, has just been informed via transmission by Nick Fury that the long debated Magneto protocols have finally been enacted. Despite a no-win simulation danger room scenario of Team Gold versus the combined might of Team Blue, the Acolytes, and Magneto himself, Team Gold throws a proverbial Hail Mary to travel to Asteroid M to save their blue counterparts, counterparts before it's too late. As we open into this month's tale, we find Team Gold at the very edge of Earth's atmosphere in the boundary between Earth and space. Using a transparent glider, which contains no metal elements such as engines for Magneto to detect, Storm's mastery of wind is, uh, uh, what's the word I was going to say? There's not much in space, as, uh, <laughs> as Angel tells us, but uh, she's able to master what little bit there is. Uh, as well as uh, the use of Archangel's bionic wings are used to glide the glider as far into space as possible. It's a very old school Claremontian stuff here. We have a... Uh... Archangel delivering some like forced but not terribly awkward expositional dialogue like you know darn my wings and apocalypse was giving them to me you know it was very uh <laughs> it's there but I've seen a lot worse it wasn't like oh, for sure you said like turn it sideways two pages of dialogue of, of exposition it was yes. well this is where we're at and this is how we made it into space in a see-through glider with no mechanical parts <laughs> it's just like just go with it okay it, we're <laughs> And this this glider has monitors on it. I don't know how they got monitors without metal, but uh. It's a great point. <laughs> yes, because it uh, yes it does have monitors. We'll get into that in a minute. But. <laughs> <laughs> we hop back to Earth when Nick Fury, Val Cooper, and Ambassador Kamenev, along with several soldiers, are preparing to fire the plasma cannon known as the Magneto Protocols directly at Asteroid M. Now our man Fury is very concerned that the cannon may cause more harm than good because cannons. They generally do that. Uh, he's worried that if the cannon doesn't fully do its job, it may knock Asteroid M right out of orbit, which, you know, uh, wheels within wheels would cause uh, some really big messes here on Earth. Uh, Val Cooper assures him that the blast should knock Asteroid M away from Earth and into space. But Fury ain't so sure. Now, no one in the room loves the idea of firing the weapon, but Chief Anderson, via satellite from Genosha, reminds everyone that this is a war against Magneto, and that if immediate action, however harsh, isn't taken, humanity could very well become Magneto's slaves. Now, both the U.S. and the Russian governments, they decide that this is a risk they are willing to take. Meanwhile, in space, Forge has possibly the most profound character moment of his existence, which is funny because we were just talking about him, you know. <laughs> he explains, and I quote, they're serious. They're scared, Miss Gray, in ways we can't even conceive of because even though we X-Men are the good guys, we're the ones they're scared of. They look around, they see a world around them that's slipping more and more out of their control. Mutants, super beings, gods, aliens. A guy who sticks to walls at one extreme, a creature who eats planets at the other. Each one that comes into being, they feel, diminishes the rest of humanity. Ordinary homo sapiens, that little bit more. The future they see, Gene, is one where they're destined to be the perpetual victims. Innocents caught between beings whose powers they barely comprehend and have a hope of matching, where they'll always be at our mercy. This way, they demonstrate they mean business. They may never be able to put the genetic genie back in the bottle, but they're still determined to be its master, and thereby prove Magneto right. Mm -hmm. 
Jean senses both the professor and her teammates aboard Asteroid M, but knows the situation is as bad as feared, and they will have to fight their blue teammates if they do not embrace Magneto's cause. The team readies themselves for the arduous task at hand. It's interesting here. Over the course of just like a handful of balloons, uh, dialogue balloons here, Forge calls Jean, Jean, Ms. Gray, and Red. <laughs> it's like we go from like super, uh, like super sophisticated Ms. Gray to, hey, Red. It just feels kind of strange. Ms. Gray is <laughs> kind of a weird thing to call your teammate that you're diving in a battle with that you've known for years, isn't it? Yeah, especially when she's probably like like 10 years younger than him. And yeah, it's weird. <laughs> um, now, we hop over to Asteroid M where, oh boy, Fabian Cortez, everyone's favorite. He, uh, he, he wonders aloud why Magneto hasn't forced Mora's experiments onto Xavier, deeming him far too dangerous to be left unchecked. Magneto doesn't want Charles turned. He wants him instead to be broken. He wants Charles to suffer and his heart to break, just as Magneto's did when learning of Charles's own betrayal. Now, Mora defends Xavier as her generic as her genetic tinkering of baby Magneto was all up to her, you know, uh, Xavier had nothing to do with it, but Magneto will hear none of it. Now, using his mastery of metal, Magneto closes her mouth shut and angrily berates Mora, calling into question her Hippocratic oath as a physician and the decision that she made to play God. Now, Magneto works himself into a furious anger before collapsing to the ground. Now, uh, he's blasting a still-concerned Mora, uh, but ever the conniving bootlicker, Fabian Cortez helps Magneto back to his feet taking him to his quarters for some, quote, rejuvenation. Now, each session of Fabian Cortez's rejuvenation seems to leave Magneto even weaker still time and time again. Unbeknownst to him. Unbeknownst to him. So, yes, uh, Fabian Cortez, uh, there's some uh, there's a conspiracy afoot. (laughs) (laughs) Elsewhere on the asteroid. uh, Hey, hey, it's the blue team. And it only took 12 pages to show up. (laughs) Our team is visiting with their new pals, the Acolytes, as Rogue dives into the Asteroid M pool. Because Magneto, you know, he's got to think of everything. I'm sure he's got a Cuisinart somewhere, he's got a hot tub, and of course a pool out there on Asteroid M. As Gambit makes the obligatory pass at Rogue, wearing the skimpiest of BVDs, No joke. Rogue shoots into the air, shaking off the cobwebs, as well as knocking Gambit into the water. And just like with Archangel before, Rogue makes sure to explain her, you know, my power, my curse. You know, <laughs> I, I can't touch you. We can't have skin to skin contact, Rami. Yeah, we get a, we get that. But you know, I, I can't even really harsh on it. I, I've I've recently been uh, covering some uh, Marvel Comics presents, uh, and there is a uh, Claremont story in there. It's a Wolverine story, and every single time out, he mentions, you know, the razor sharp, unbreakable adamantium, yada yada mm-hmm. yada, and my mutant healing factor, my keen senses. And, like, as a, you know, jaded, you know, 40-year-old, 40, 40 it's like, oh, okay, again? But there's a charm to that. It it it, is, it, yeah. it respects the fact that this might be someone's first book. And right. uh, so this is before the X-Men cartoon is out. So someone buying this on a lark or buying it because they think they're going to make a bank on it, it tells us what, what her deal is. And I, I you know, I, I, as silly as it is and as comic booky as it is, I love it. You know, it's it's great. I suppose if it's Iceman, you don't need to explain his Probably power. not. Pretty yeah. self-explanatory. Colossus. Oh, he's a big metal guy with with, uh, with muscles, you know. But I suppose sure. Wolverine or Rogue, you have to explain that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I would like to point out that makes her exposition that much more hilarious upon my uh, read-through this afternoon She's wearing a full bodysuit, including gloves. So yep. he could have touched her anyways, and mm-hmm. he would have been fine. The only thing that was exposed was her face. So That's it kind of makes the whole thing a moot point. <laughs> hey, stay away from me. Uh, you know, don't touch my skin. She did, she's she's wearing a, a full bodysuit, so yep. it really wasn't a problem. <laughs> she just didn't want her uh, slimy uh, Cajun paws all over her, I'm sure. I, I, can, <laughs> I, I, can, I, I was going to say I can relate, but I can't. Uh. <laughs> I can sympathize or empathize. There we go. (laughs) Gambit tells Wolverine she looks scary, to which Wolverine makes mention that a double dose of Gambit's, and I quote, come hither heartbreaker eyes are enough to scare any woman and that eventually they will both come to their senses. Uh, By, uh, quote, come to their senses in that last statement, maybe Logan thinks Gambit's trying to make time with the wrong teammate, uh, if you get my drift. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. 
Wolverine quietly slips away from the scene as Beast takes notice. Mm-hmm. Aboard the glider, Jean Grey reaches out with her psi power and uses her telekinetic force to pull the glider towards Asteroid M undetected. Professor X can sense the great strain this is causing Jean, but he's only able to look on helplessly as Magneto has enabled inhibitors dampening Charles's powers. Moira can barely see something approaching the asteroid as out of nowhere Wolverine suddenly appears behind her. Transparent plane. Storm's idea. Forge's doing. I'll bet. Very sneaky. I like that, he says. Sure he has his senses, but how would he know all that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> and Claremont didn't give us any exposition to explain that one away. Why couldn't it have been Storm? Uh, he says Storm's idea. Why couldn't it have been Jean's idea? She's not an idiot. Maybe, no. you know, I suppose it's not. Nobody's going to uh, uh, assume it was Bobby Drake's idea. It probably wasn't but. Bobby. No. <laughs> he would have just tried to, like, do an ice slide all the way up from her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, finally, Wolverine leaves to give them the, and I quote, welcome that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Now back with the uh, back with the Goldies here. An exhausted Gene lands the glider onto Asteroid M. Now using Iceman's extreme cold and a big metal fist from Colossus, Team Gold makes their way inside. Doesn't take long before they locate Professor X, who immediately makes a joke, like he's disappointed that because he was expecting pizza delivery. He's like, ah, I was hoping you were the pizza guy, <laughs> which is weird. Um, totally weird. Totally. Uh, Colossus is caught completely off guard. He has even asked Storm if Charles might perhaps be unwell. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, now, Jean requires, replies that Charles is only human, complete with a sense of humor. Uh-huh. Archangel <laughs> replies, such as it is, which, yes. Uh, Xavier jokes about, hey, I don't get no respect from anyone, eh? Um, which is weird, because I... The direness of this situation, right? Uh, we have the X-Men joining Magneto, the the coolest and most powerful X-Men going, just joined Magneto and his group of acolytes here. So I think Colossus might be onto something here. This is very much out of character. Don't make jokes now, is what we're trying to say. It is and weird. Very the rest strange. Of the, the rest it's of the like, teammates are, are, you know, under mind control, and, you know, they have to fight the acolytes. Magneto, he's, his powers are gone. Mm-hmm. And he's getting like there's a missile coming. There's a missile coming, <laughs> exactly. And he's getting the B squad, and he's you know hey, uh, get no respect, get no respect for you. He's making he's making one liners like it's uh, lady ladybugs or something, you know. <laughs> it's it's like did maybe Claremont forgot to script these, and uh, they they like ran into Scott Lobdell in the bathroom, and they're like, hey, uh, we got two panels that that Chris forgot to do before he left. Uh, you mind filling in? <laughs> oh. Sure. I ain't going no respect. <laughs> and, so yes, this to be is fair, very, like, I very mean, weird. it's a pretty heavy. It's been a pretty heavy, heavy few issues. Sure. So I, suppose, I suppose some levity uh, is well deserved, but that is a really weird spot to throw it in there. Especially with Xavier doing it. Yeah. yeah very weird. <laughs> uh, something I noticed uh, during the reread. Uh, once they bust through the wall to get the mutants, uh, Colossus picks Xavier up and carries him through the spacecraft. Uh, you know, for a team anticipating bad like Magneto, the Acolytes, and their brainwashed teammates, uh, that doesn't seem like a great idea, does it? When he's no. in this uh, space-age, high-tech, Shi'ar, what, uh, hover hover chair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and later on, when they, spoiler, if they get off Asteroid M, uh, the wheelchair's back, so it's I don't back. know if they went back to get it, or if they said, Forge, will you push, you're not doing anything, will you just push hanging out. this yeah. through, just push it through everything, but... I don't know. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah, very much so. It's like, let's take our most powerful guy and uh, put an old man in his hands. <laughs> he can't do anything. But then again, he is a guy made out of metal. So uh, Magneto would probably, uh, if he had his druthers about him, would be uh, he would be no problem. <laughs> Just fight Delgado if you see him, okay? <laughs> get Delgado. Get Mellencamp. Come on. <laughs> The team presses on to find their teammates telepathically through Gene, as Xavier is still rendered helpless due to dampeners. However, Team Blue has found them. Cyclops suddenly appears behind them, grabbing Gene and kissing her deeply as he asks, So tell me, Red, is my kiss as much fun as Wolverine's? Hmm. Much to the surprise of everyone, especially Gene. An optic blast sends Gene reeling as the rest of Team Blue appears, imploring them to join Magneto's cause. 
They, of course, refuse, and the fight is on. I probably should have done a little bit more research here, but I can't remember, or, you know, back in 1991, when was the last time that, that Gene and Wolverine kissed? Yeah. That seems like something sure like, like right out of, like, giant size. That, that, that was where, like, that love triangle came, and then the cartoon didn't come out for another year, which was no. when they kind of played that up. That's weird. And it occurred to me today where, like, in hindsight, it doesn't seem so weird because it's been elaborated on. They've pushed it, yeah. Yeah, so much over the years. But at the time, it's kind of odd. (laughs) Yeah, it's like an anachronism or whatever they call it. Yeah, Yeah. anachronism. Colossus is attacked from behind by the Acolyte Delgado. There he is. Which it says, oh, no, the Acolyte Delgado, which is like, oh, no, it's Conquistador number two. It's just weird, you know what I mean? (laughs) Instead of just calling him Delgado, it's. I don't know. It's, it's again, more weird writing in the second half of this book. It's those new Marvel action figures where it's like, it's Marvel's Punisher. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's attacked from behind by the acolyte Delgado and tossed to the ground. From above, Beast attacks Delgado. Gambit takes down Banshee with a bow staff strike as he assures Beast that when all is said and done, he will see the light. Iceman and Forge team up to take down Gambit, as Psylocke also attacks from above, taking down Iceman via her psychic blade. However, the attack backfires as the blast triggers an outburst of energy from Iceman, leaving Psylocke and their immediate surroundings covered in ice. Now, Iceman, he blops Gambit in the face with an ice brick, which... Which at at the at the angle and at like the the velocity that this hits Gambit's face, it should have killed him. <laughs> it's like or the very I mean he looks like a Pez dispenser. It should have at least broken his neck. Um, this thing was coming at him pretty hard. Uh, and Psylocke's attack on Iceman, um, it's like something out of like apartment wrestling or like a fetish comic. Her legs are wrapped real tight around his neck. Meanwhile, Cyclops is still attacking Jean with optic blasts that she's narrowly avoiding via weakened telepathy. Suddenly, Rogue appears, taking a blast from Cyclops that oddly leaves her relatively unharmed. This somehow snaps Cyclops out of his mental conditioning as he comes to his senses. Just then, Magneto and his acolytes appear, who admits he kind of figured no amount of brainwashing would permanently turn the X-Men due to their strong strength of character. Cyclops sets sets his sights pun not intended, <laughs> on Magneto taking him down via blast before being taken down himself by an acolyte. Which is just, uh, suddenly, you know, it was a big deal to turn these guys uh, heel, have them brainwashed, and suddenly, just like that, it's, it's all done. It's it just very, made, very quick, yeah. Because of their, their character being so strong. It seems like somebody wrote themselves into a corner and was like, oh my gosh, we only have like four pages left. How are we, <laughs> what are we going to do for this? We got four pages and the writer quit. God, what do we do? What do we do? <laughs> now, Magneto quickly recovers and he announces that he's had enough of all the fighting and, of course, all the destruction of his home. Charles tells Magneto that his twisted dream of mutant domination cannot endure. And that at this point, he's got way too much blood on his hands already. Magneto lifts him from his seat, choking him as he chastises his comments after what he still believes to be a betrayal after that whole genetic tinkering thing during his time as a baby. Charles tells Magneto his dream is tainted by all the unnecessary lives he's taken over the years. And as he says this, Magneto falls to the floor with just pain all over him here. Now, Wolverine appears, and he tells Magneto it's game over. As uh, <laughs> Magneto just, he's like, you know what? Do what you do best. Kill me. You know, be be my executioner. And Wolverine thinks about it and figures, eh, I draw the line at murder, which uh, makes me pine for the good old days. Yeah, you know, just I, weird to see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back when it was like, no, heroes don't kill. Remember that? Hmm. Ah, the good old days. <laughs> Moira appears and informs Magneto that his genetic engineering was only effective if the subject no longer used their mutant ability, something Magneto himself has obviously been using in spades. Mm. Which, nah, I guess, must be when she when she imbued that into the X-Men, she kind of knew that it wasn't going to hold for very long because, obviously, they're going to use their mutant powers, right? Sure. Um, by using his ability, it's actually reverting Magneto back to his natural, quote, default state and negating the genetic engineering. Moira tells Magneto that if anyone here has shown betrayal, he need look no further than the man who has falsely been healing him all this time, 
Fabian Cortez. Magneto believes this is a lie. Wolverine says, maybe, but Cortez just left in a skate pod, and that's why he was so <laughs> late to the throwdown. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of, uh, well, reading that reminded me of, like, the Spaceballs, when uh, President Scro- I don't know if you've ever seen Spaceballs, oh, yeah. President Scroob and, you know, Colonel Sanders are trying to get in their escape pod to leave. Like, oh, there he goes, they're just leaving, and everybody's leaving the escape pod, so... <laughs> Storm then reminds everyone of the impending plasma cannon. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Of which, Cortez, <laughs> of which Cortez is commandeered via satellite, proclaiming that Magneto's spirit will live on as he pays the ultimate price, continuing to inspire his cause via death as a martyr. He then fires on Asteroid M, which is linked with Magneto himself, as both take on heavy damage. Just for good measure, Cortez also attempted to detonate the nuclear warheads surrounding Asteroid M, but these are easily disabled by Magneto. It's funny, like just two seconds ago, Magneto would never believe that Cortez would turn on him. <laughs> and here he is, <laughs> trying to blow up nukes. Oh, boy. I got a plasma cannon and uh, nuclear warheads, because it's uh, overkill, and it's 1991. Yes. Now, the X-Men plan a hasty retreat from the asteroid, and they invite Magneto, as, as well as his acolytes, to follow them. Oh, however, the offer is declined. Um, as an energy shielded magneto, um, an energy shielded magneto projected to surround and protect those inside asteroid M requires his complete concentration in order to maintain. Now, magneto has seen the worst that humanity has to offer through his, you know, his time during the Holocaust and the Nazi death camps, and uh, the future he beholds for humanity and anyone who would stand by them is war, nothing less. Now, Xavier is brought back about the glider, begging for his friend to listen to reason. But it's of no use. Magneto will not leave. Now, the asteroid explodes as the X-Men escape, and Magneto opens his mind to Xavier, which, you know, he's able to get some last words out. He tells him that it's his job to protect mutants from those that would do them harm. And while both he and Charles are greatly alike, once he chose to oppose him, he had no choice but to count him as an enemy. Magneto thinks maybe it's for the best that he dies in space above the Earth, for if they were to meet again, Magneto would show him no mercy. He will let Xavier have his dream, but he fears that his heart will break as he realizes that the dream is nothing more than a fool's hope. The teams glide back towards Earth as Xavier assures Moira that while she by no means had the right to tamper with Magneto's genetic code, she's by no means to blame for Magneto's worldview because it was shaped long ago. As the team looks on, Xavier strives to make the world better than they found it in a world sustained by hope. Mm-hmm. Our final words in the bottom panel on the, the lower right-hand side are, quote, CSC-1976-1991, to Finn. And wow. uh, next up, we have Omega Red. Out with a bang, Mr. Claremont. Uh, he gets the tiniest little blurb. And I mean, when I read this as uh, you know an 11 year old, I didn't know what that meant. No, <laughs> I didn't. No. I didn't understand the significance or the lack of significance, or the, at least the lack of respect that he was shown here. Um, yeah, uh, well, we'll talk more about Claremont, but how 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 about uh, we give some thoughts about uh, about this issue? What, what do you what do you got? Well, as always, the art was pretty. Everything sure. looked great, you know. Sure. He's, uh, <clears throat> Jim Lee hit it out of the park. Classic Jim Lee. Lots of classic panels. Magneto's never looked better. Nope. But obviously, from a writing standpoint, you really, <clears throat> excuse me, you really wonder how much Claremont actually had to do with this book because it seems yeah. like, well, what are we? Uh, I don't know if they had a basic plot to go by or what. But this last half of this book really, really falls apart. Yeah, because like the first half of the book is just getting the gold team there. You yes. Know, yeah. It's just it feels very very unbalanced. Um, it feels like we were in for a longer story, uh, or at least this was not going to pay off here. Maybe this was going to be maybe it was going to end similarly, but Magneto wasn't. You know, Magneto was just going to bubble along in the background for a bit. It, it is a very very convenient ending. Very it felt very easy to get the uh, the blue team out of their conditioning. Um, Mora's explanation for it was like a little, eh, you know, uh, with, with the, the using the mutant powers or not using the powers. It all felt very, very contrived. And uh, I, I don't think this was a I don't think this was indicative of the Claremont run. No, uh, 
It almost seems like it was, uh, you know, uh, we, we'll never know how he planned on finishing this, but it was almost like the, the written into a corner. Yeah. All right, we have a we have an asteroid. We have we or excuse me, we have this plasma cannon. We have the Magneto protocols. We have these, uh, uh, you know, we have atomic bombs. We have there's just so much, so many loose ends to tie up in this. Yep. And you get to that second half of the book, and it's. Uh, yep, they're all they're fine now, and they're gonna get off. It was just really just trying to write themselves out of a corner. And all right, let's uh, Omega Red, let's get on to the next thing, and uh, hopefully make a fresh start of it. Yeah, everything is Fabian Cortez's fault. Everything. <laughs> he did everything. Yeah, and it's such a shame because like last the last issue, issue two, we gushed on that because of how Claremontian it was and how he dug into like. Issues of the Defenders to yes, pull stuff yes, together, and and the fact that he was able to explain away um, Magneto's return to villainy um, with such grace, and uh, it was just so tactful. It was like it was like writing masterclass, um, and just a beautiful way to use established lore and continuity to move a character into the next phase of of being. And here, I, I yeah that that at the staples this one changed this one took a turn at the staples where we had so much build we had two and a half issues of build and then less than half an issue to pay it all off and uh, and leave no stragglers behind it's it's, uh, it's a shame just a shame it's so disjointed I mean like we'd said earlier you have humor bits that come out of nowhere you have <laughs> kind of like continuity things with the chair that don't really make a lot of yeah. sense just oh well, there goes cortez it's it really like you said it really seems like maybe this was supposed to go another issue mm. you know uh, if, if we don't believe wizards uh solicit anyways it seems like maybe it was supposed to go another issue which i don't know how they would have made this last another issue because it seems don't like know. it was kind of I, I don't know it seems like it was kind of headed towards the end I, unless we you know, got another five pages of, of Magneto's uh, soliloquies that we've been do- hearing the last, the first two issues of this, unless we got some more of that. But for the most part, it just, it just seems to wrap up so quickly. It does. Cause I, I figure, I mean, we can look at Fabian Cortez and know that he's a bad guy. Cause he looks like a bad guy. He looks like a guy that you'd want to punch in the face. Um, but we don't really see outside of, like Mora making the observation that every time he heals you, you come back weaker. We don't know a whole lot about him, you know? Right. So maybe there was going to be a little bit more with, uh, with Fabian Cortez. Maybe there was going to be a few more pages with Omega red. Cause we did see Omega reds casket last issue very briefly with a uh, Maxwell right. Tsuraba or whatever his name is. <laughs> so I can never say that. Uh, but uh, maybe there would have been more uh, stuff with Omega red. Maybe we would have seen him, for the maybe this would have been his first appearance out of the coffin. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's so weird looking at this with like analytical eyes because this will always be a three-part story to me. Mm-hmm. It, it, there'll be no, there's no way to even consider it being a two-part or a four-part or a five-part or a six-part. It's always just you know the final three issues of Chris Claremont's run. So it's it's very weird to try to pick it apart. Um, that, that won't stop us, but I mean it's like it just feels. Uh, it almost feels like, like you know, when you comb your hair the wrong way, you know, <laughs> you go against right. the grain and you're like, whoa, oh, it doesn't feel it's right. It's there, but it doesn't feel right to me. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't look right. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just a very, uh, it's a sadly weak ending. And uh, I mean, what we're in for with Omega Red, I mean, we're gonna bring Jubilee back to the team. We're gonna, it's gonna yeah. be, it's gonna be fun. You know, we're gonna get some fun stuff here. So it's almost like they're packing Dad away here. It's like ah. Uh, Let's get dad out of here so we can get the, you know, so we can start pouring the drinks and, and, you know, and put the black light on or whatever. But we, uh, we did the obligatory uh, Magneto story. Yes. Now we can get on to other, introducing new ideas and new things. Sure. And moving forward. But, uh, but, you know, we, we are not done with Chris Claremont on this show because at this point, whether we know it or not, uh, there's a, there's a fork in the road before us here. There's going to be a new segment added to the program next episode. We're going to keep doing X-Men Volume 2. So X-Men Volume 2 number 4 will be here, as always. 
and we're going to see how the Claremontless X-Men go about their business. We'll meet Omega Red. Jubilee will be back. I think I don't know if Maverick shows up just yet. He'll be here soon. <laughs> He's coming. <laughs> He's coming. But uh, we will also be taking a look at X-Men Forever number one, which was the uh, the return of Chris Claremont if he had never left. This was Chris Claremont's story, his opus, the things that he uh, says that he had planned for this volume. And uh, it's a mixed bag. Uh, it's uh, not the greatest thing you'll ever want to read. And after, you know, a decade and a half of hearing all the great and wonderful things Chris Claremont was going to do on places like Usenet or on XFan or whatever website was out there, actually seeing it in living color is a bit of a letdown. But mm-hmm. uh, but we will see both. We're going to see both and we're going to. We're going to talk about both books, and we're going to see which one, uh, which was the right timeline. Which timeline would we have preferred to exist in, since we do have <laughs> the luxury of seeing both. Um, but that that's going to be a lot of fun. I think that's going to be an interesting exercise, and hopefully uh, hopefully, folks will uh, give us our, their two cents here. Do you have anything else to say about just the Claremont run? Um, You know, this this brief Claremont run with, with Jim Lee was... Obviously, as far as nostalgic sake go, excuse me, nostalgia's sake goes, was you know a really nice trip back in time to look at that. A lot of memorable panels, um, some not so memorable dialogue at times. It's definitely not uh, Claremont's best work, yeah. but um, it's definitely for me, anyways, as a kid in the '90s, as one of these, excuse me, one of the things that kind of brought me into it. Uh, it was really nice to revisit this. For sure, for sure, and uh, yeah, I, I've been doing a lot of reading on uh, on Claremont around this time. Uh, there's just been so much written about it since it was such a like a seismic shift to like Marvel's top selling book, or like the top selling book in comics at the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, you get the feeling that Jim Lee had his idea that uh, he wanted to like kind of play the classics. He wanted to play the hits. He wanted the uh, he wanted the Magneto fight. He wanted the Sentinels back. He he wanted all the things that that you know you think of when you think of the X Men. And uh, Claremont wanted to maybe move forward. And Jim Lee wasn't having it. Who and he had Bob Harris's ear, who was just like, okay, we can I guess we can spare the writer here. Um, uh, the Claremont, uh, the the aborted plot lines, uh, so to speak, that he had planned for what was to come. He did share some of those, and they were we're we're going to see some of those play out in X Men Forever. But uh, I, I remember people being very very excited for those and thinking that we got like a lesser version. And uh, I, I suppose we'll we'll be the judge of that later. But uh, well- but it was uh, the the things that he was talking about were uh, they were forward thinking um, compared to what we would wind up getting with you know playing hits playing playing the uh, the you know the the greatest hits of the X Men. Um, but that isn't to say that we're not going to get some new stuff. Uh, this whole next arc with Omega Red that's new characters. Absolutely. Because this is back in the day where creators made new characters and. <laughs> We're, we're still giving to the universes that were shared, and um, that's part of the reason why they a lot of them left. But uh, <laughs> it's gonna—I think it's gonna be a good ride either way. Both both books are gonna be fun to cover. Um, this is—I agree with you. This is definitely not uh, the like the the prototypical uh, Claremont work here. Um, he didn't get the opportunity to do a lot of the things that he is known for doing, which I mean, maybe after, you know, a decade and a half in the same book, it's good to get a new get a new voice. Um, it still stinks the way that he was kind of just dismissed. Yes. After but, uh, stories and such a long tenure on the book and just yep. <clears throat> I mean, it was his, essentially from the mid 70s up until 91 it was his voice that you heard mm-hmm. his oh, voice yeah. that you heard on this book yeah and he and he turned a a book that couldn't they couldn't give away into a book that they couldn't keep on shelves so right right now m- maybe you would know the answer to this now what did claremont go on to do i mean obviously he's done other things mm-hmm. direct 
directly after this, what was the next thing he worked on? Directly after this, he went to write some, uh, I think he went on tour for a novel, and I think he wrote a third novel. But after that, he did some work, oddly enough, for Jim Lee over on Wildcats. Um, (laughs) Claremont uh, Claremont was actually uh, listed on some of the earliest promotional uh, uh, you know promotional items for image as one of the founders of image comics um i don't know how, why that didn't come to pass but uh it was something that uh you could probably find them online where where claremont's name is is on those but he had a character he created called the huntsman which uh i don't remember a whole heck of a lot about the huntsman other than the fact that he first appeared in an issue of wildcats <laughs> and I don't know that he did anything after that. Um, but uh, Claremont would go on to uh, he would go on to work for DC and he would do Sovereign Seven. Yes. Which yes, Sovereign Seven. Which kind of sucked. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't I great. First issue. I don't know if I, I feel like I found that on a newsstand, probably a f- number one issue, you know, and decided to pick that. And, uh, <laughs> like for everybody else, it did absolutely nothing for me. Yeah, like the most notable thing to me about Sovereign Seven, it was the first in-continuity creator-owned DC comics series. So Claremont owned it, but it was part of DC continuity. So that, that, that's kind of interesting. Um, and if you're DC, you're taking that deal. Oh, you, oh 100%. The king of the, the team book that's worked on X-Men so many years? Yeah, especially 1995 uh, mm-hmm. Which is kind of, you know, at times he's throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Like, sure. Fully, we'll take that. Of course, we'll take the team book. Yeah, and uh, it was, uh, you could tell that Claremont was getting a little um, out of touch with dialogue because uh, it was pretty cringy in, in Sovereign Seven. Um, like, he actually like would have people say, strike a pose, which... <laughs> I mean, just doesn't uh, doesn't work for me. <laughs> it just uh, oh. it's like if you it would be like the equivalent of like like on America's Funniest Home Videos watching like a grandmother rap, you know. <laughs> like it's like it's funny the first time, but after that it's like okay, now we're just now we're just being mean to grandma. So let's let's let her go back to bed. But uh, <laughs> I'm hip, I'm cool. Look, and and if you look at the Sovereign Seven, I. I I can picture the first issue in my mind and picture that the cover. Mm-hmm. It definitely has, it's definitely influenced by um, image. It has a very oh, yeah. blood wildcat sort of look to it, which is a really kind of weird aesthetic for DC. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much for Marvel, but for DC, it just had, I mean, all the credit I can give it, I suppose it did have a different look to it than everything else. DC was putting sure. up at Claremont, but unfortunately uh, it was just uh, it felt always felt to me like it was too far removed from DC proper to yeah. really fit in, you know? Yeah, because it would have like occasional guest spots. I know there's a there's a, a really cool looking um, uh, issue uh, that has Superman in it. And it's got like a the cover has like the because ele- he was electric blue at the time. And it has like the sovereign S cut, cutting through the uh, electric blue shield, which is really cool to look at. But uh I think at the end of Sovereign Seven, it turned out that the entire thing was just a story being read to some kid. Oh. So they were able to they were able to finagle it out. So uh, <laughs> take the we're gonna take the New Heart slash like Saint Elsewhere <laughs> approach to this and just write the whole thing off, right? Yes, basically, uh, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that'll that'll do it for the uh, for the Claremont run for now. Um, but. We're doing a hook, just like we did the last issue, issue episode, and the episode before that. We're doing a hook, and this time out, instead of asking silly questions, uh, each of the co-hosts will be telling me what songs would be on the soundtrack to their lives, which I think is a nice and fun way to get some insight into folks and uh, and just kind of maybe find out their taste in music and also find out uh, some of their associations. So. Uh, how about you hit me with your, your first soundtrack beat? Well, I have to tell you, Chris, this was both a very easy exercise to partake in, <laughs> but also a very hard exercise to partake in. Like, sure. What would be, I tried to narrow, what would be the soundtrack to my life? What different moments, different 
sections of my life, you know, I, I really tried to, to narrow it down. And I would say <clears throat> I almost have it in a chronological order. Okay. And, uh, first and foremost, uh, I chose for uh, first first song would be The Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota by Weird Al Yankovic, because uh, <laughs> this is off the UHF soundtrack um, from his motion picture. When I was a kid, Weird Al Yankovic was everything to me. Uh, I, I'm sure... Uh, like like a lot of kids my age obviously sure. but i don't know it it was accessible it was safe it was fun it was uh you know when you're eight hearing songs written about like the white stuff in the middle of an oreo or you know <laughs> polkas about you know hall and oat songs mixed into it it's just that was it was everything you know wild crazy fun weird al spoke on a lot of levels so uh and that was uh, I don't know if you, I don't know how familiar you are with his work, but this song clocks in around I'd say six seven minutes. Oh wow! Story of uh, a family that is going to visit the uh, biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. Go figure that. <laughs> Which is a real place. It's a it's a real thing that's in Minnesota, and it's just it's a big story, and it's like I said seven minutes of dialogue and fun, but it was it was definitely a hook for me. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> now for my second song. Now I know you know this one. The mm. um, <clears throat> second song for me would be uh, "Real American" by Rick Derringer. Okay. Uh, of course, would be uh, m- most folks would know as Hulk Hogan's uh, WWF theme song, his original theme song. Now I will tell you, when I was a kid, I hated Hulk Hogan. I really? Never, I'm not a not a big fan. I think it was because he he never lost. Sure. He didn't lose any matches, and it was really annoying to me. Also, um, uh, I was seven years old uh, when when WrestleMania five hit, and mm-hmm. I was fully in the camp of the Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> and, and I thought Hulk was a jerk. I thought he shouldn't have deserted him on one on Saturday night's main event. And I was fully team team Savage on that one. But the reason that this is my choice, this might be my favorite song of all time because when you hear those opening bars. I'm not even I'm not even that very patriotic, but when you hear those opening bars and you picture the Hulkster coming out and he's he watch out Akeem because he's coming. <laughs> I hear that song and I can't help but just like it's the best. It's oh, awesome. it gets you pumped. Yeah. Pumped. Have you ever heard the extended version? That's what I've got. Yeah, I've got the it's a, I've got the, I've got a copy of the wrestling album. Which, okay. Uh, it's funny because in my head when I listen, I don't know if you've ever heard the wrestling album, but the original, ver, the original extended version of Real American was for uh, <laughs> Barry Windham and Mike Rotunda, the US, U.S. Express. Yep. When you listen to the version I have of the wrestling album, which is from I think '85. Okay. Uh, you listen to the song and it cuts out and um, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesse Ventura does a little bit of commentary at the end and he goes. I can't believe that song is for Wyndham and Rotunda. And like, <laughs> you know, when I hear the song, that's what I think in my head. I hear Jesse saying like, I can't believe it's for Wyndham and Rotunda, which of course it, it wasn't. <laughs> Eventually. Um, for my third song, uh, this is a bit of an obscure track, but I have Hide Your Heart from uh, Kiss, which is off the Hot in the Shade album. Uh, <laughs> I, I started really getting into Kiss probably, I don't know, senior year. But I don't, unlike most folks, uh, my favorite era of Kiss isn't like the, the makeup version from the 70s. I like I like the, uh, like, hairband uh, MTV, like, mid to late 80s version of Kiss where okay. they took off ass and they're kind of ugly. And they're like, let's, leave, <laughs> let's put Paul Stanley on TV because he's he's attractive and not, not show Gene Simmons because he's a fan. <laughs> We'll just go with Paul Stanley. Now, Paul Stanley is probably my favorite member of the group. Uh, I think the rest of the members, original members, are kind of buttholes. So, uh, <laughs> but I love their music. Um, but uh, I uh, I really like Paul Stanley, and this is a very Stanley-heavy uh, era. So that's that's my I think that that's my my favorite Kiss song. So that is uh, that's why that's uh, coming in at number three. I remember seeing the uh, the ads for the uh, the album without their ma- without their paint on uh, in like the proto Vertigo books like uh, ah. like it would be like Doom Patrol before it turned Vertigo they would have the they would have a, an ad for a Kiss album where they all were without the paint. 
Yes, it was the, uh, uh, what is it? Um, it's got Domino on it. It's from 92. I can't think of, I'm having a real brain fart here, but yes, black leather. It was on yep. all the back of the comics circa, it was like during the eclipse of the darkness within. Yes, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Is it Revenge? It might be Revenge. I think it, you're right. I think it's the Revenge album. It looked like, uh, looked like spray paint. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was, a, it was a big comeback for them. <laughs> Now, my my fourth song, it's kind of from the same era, is uh, Come On, Feel the Noise by Quiet Riot. Um, this song was a song that I would uh, listen to. We used to have, uh, in high school, we had dances every, mm, probably once a month. And this was my, uh, having purchased the uh, Monsters of Rock album that you would uh, commonly see on, uh, you know, in between, it was it, um, Razor and Tie Records, I think. It was one of the ones you'd call in for 1999 and send away records when you could still do such a or excuse me, CDs when you could still do such a thing. Well, I got the Walmart version of it, the one disc, and hmm. uh, this was this was my get me pumped up for the dance sort of song where I'm, I'm getting ready and getting all, all slicked up. But uh, I don't know why. It, it's always been another one of the like, hey, I, I'm getting ready to go out or I'm getting ready to go to work. I need to I need to pump myself up. So it's Real American and Come On, Feel the Noise. <laughs> songs for that. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> My next song is uh, Du Hast by Rammstein. Okay. Which, uh, was uh, one of my, much like yourself, maybe not to quite the degree, uh, one of my uh, backyard wrestling uh, wrestler themes. Okay. <laughs> oh, the wrestler's name was Pierce, and he was a uh, he was a, a ex army soldier. And you'd hear the bars of Du Hast, and he he'd just come out like Kane and just start just start wrecking. <laughs> <laughs> he was one of my uh, one of my backyard wrestlers, along with Mr. Brutality, Joey Yurden, because Jody is not a tough name. So of course he became Joey Yurden, much like you. Where uh, Chris Chris Summers? I was. <laughs> yes, and so uh, I, as a backyard wrestler, it was. Uh, I, I wasn't fortunate enough to wrestle in a real ring. I had to settle for a uh, trampoline. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there was only four of us in the wrestling federation with different gimmicks. One of them was my little sister because the, you know she could take a bump because she was six years younger than me. So if we needed somebody to take a a TKO or a power bomb, she was she was the one to take it. <laughs> <laughs> what was your finish? Um, well, Pierce's finish was the napalm bomb, which I think was like a full, like a full Nelson slam, because you could anybody can work with you on that. Sure. And Mr. Brutality's finish was the uh, double arm DDT, because he was essentially like a hybrid of Mick Foley and Tommy Dreamer. So okay, that very unoriginal finish. You know, my 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 uh, my wardrobe consisted of like black sweatpants and and white socks and a shirt I had turned inside out and painted Mr. Brutality in puff paint. I don't know if you know what puff paint. I do. <laughs> All my costumes consisted of puff paint. <laughs> you you could have actually wrestled for ECW wearing that outfit. Yes, I wasn't. I could have bought <laughs> like the Baldies or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, my next song is uh, Hey Baby by No Doubt because uh, I had a No Doubt phase uh, somewhere okay. in my late teens, early 20s. And uh, uh, it's funny, because, uh, I guess I chose this song because I remember uh, distinctly the f- first night I heard this song uh, made its big premiere on the radio. Um, I remember waiting for a friend out in my car, waiting for him to uh, get done with work, and I ate an entire... 10 pack of Reese's peanut butter cups <laughs> waiting for him to come out. So yeah, it was, it was a real, you know, you live your best life. And I guess that can eating a 10 pack of Reese's peanut butter cups and uh, listening to no doubt, at least for me. <laughs> hey, why not? <laughs> uh, number seven is a song called uh, what's left to the flag by flogging Molly. Uh, again, like, uh, okay. No doubt. I uh, I had my flogging Molly phase at some point where uh, I enjoyed their uh, Celtic punk sort of sensibilities and uh, uh, went to a few concerts with them and that was a that was a big part of my life in my my early twenties so uh, I, I would be amiss if I didn't put that on the list. Very cool. Yeah, I, I like those guys. Yeah, they're good good stuff. Very good stuff. <laughs> 
Um, number eight is, uh, <laughs> this is kind of a funny one, is uh, You Make Me Happy by The Muppets um, from the Muppets Take Manhattan soundtrack, which uh, the, the, the titular line there, uh, You Make Me Happy, is on the inside of my wedding ring. Because it is the the song my wife and I danced to at our at our wedding. <laughs> oh, very cool. That's awesome. Kermit. And- <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of you know in in a chronological way that's kind of where I am right now. And uh, I have to be honest, the last ten years or so, music has not really been a big part of my life as I've gotten mm-hmm. to listening into podcasts and whatnot. Uh, it just really hasn't been a big part of my life as much as it used to be. Sure. Stuff, but if I wasn't listening to podcasts so much, I would never have found your show. So I'm, <laughs> there you go. So my last selection, number nine, is actually, this is kind of where I am with it, with music nowadays, would be uh, Another Auld Lang Syne by Dan Fogelberg, <laughs> which is a Christmas song, but it kind of encompasses uh, that sad, melodic, yacht rock soft rock uh sensibilities that's that, i'm an old man that's that's where i'm at <laughs> point <laughs> is uh just listening to uh you know listening to hall and oats or uh michael, michael mcdonald there he is Judge we freedom. oh dude that is that that that's the song right there <laughs> So that's all I got, Chris. That's 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 a taste, I guess, of uh, you know where I've come from, where I've been. Uh, I don't know how good of a story that was for everybody, but uh, it made me think back on a few things. So that was it was kind of nice. No, it's a fun exercise, I think, because uh, I've because I figure at the end of this episode, if anybody makes it all 45 hours, they can hear mine. Yeah. I will. <laughs> I'll share my uh, picks there, and I've been I've been running them through and trying to figure out what I'm gonna say and. Uh, I've got a Christmas song on there myself. It's a, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a fun time. It's a fun exercise, and it really makes you, like, compartmentalize your life in a way, um, because like some of the things that I'll be talking about, like, like, like you had here, you, where you're at right now, is a song from a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be something from like right here. Um, which is like the coolest part of, the, of an exercise like this, because if we were just reading off like, it's like, well, okay, it was 1991, I was in fifth grade, so I like this song. You know, these are things that actually, like, you take with you and you can reflect on and you can think about, you know, the old cliche things of like, you know, how how it reflects, how you felt, or how it spoke to you, uh, how it. You know, how it might have brought a tear to your eye, how it pumped you up, how it just worked. And right. uh, I think that that's a fun exercise, and I think it's a really neat way to uh, to kind of like pull the uh, pull the veil back and uh, not just be a bunch of guys talking about comics. We're just, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're, we're human folks, and, uh, and, and I hope that the listeners will do the same thing. Um, I hope they'll, they'll tell us some of their soundtrack songs or I know I, I did, uh, I did one of these pr- earlier and, uh, and it's a, it's a host from later on in the episode. And after we did it, he actually put a Spotify list together of his soundtrack. So he oh, has the soundtrack right. to his life on Spotify now. So it's, it, it's a fun exercise and, uh, and, and it's a hard exercise, but it's also a very easy exercise. Like you said, it's, it, it's a trip. It is. And it's yeah. hard. I mean, there was a couple songs. I'm like, I could put that in there. That reminded me of probably the first time I had my heart broke. But I'm not putting that on there. <laughs> yeah, we're going to try to keep things upbeat here. I, I don't need it. <laughs> I could. But, For sure. Uh, and I will say, if your Christmas song is uh, simply having another Christmas, uh, simply having a wonderful Christmas time, I don't know if I can listen to your show anymore. It's not. It's not. I <laughs> promise it's not. Oh, that. Oh, that's not. I hate that song. <laughs> No, we've got the uh, like the serious uh, satellite radio. So from like Halloween till like the first week of January, it's all Christmas. There's like four stations that are all Christmas music, and and that my dial doesn't change. It's all Christmas all the time. I I love it. I, if they had it all year long, I'd be listening to it now. Um, <laughs> it's actually when this year started, uh, 2020. 
one of the ideas I had for a show was going to be Christmas on Infinite Earths. And I was going to do a Christmas comic every single week of the year. But I figured who's going to listen to a Christmas episode every week of the year. But <laughs> I didn't realize what 2020 had in store for us. And we might all need a little Christmas. But uh, eh, we'll see. Maybe one of these days. I think that's a great idea. I'd listen to that. <laughs> but I think that's uh, that's all we got for this segment here. I want to thank you for, for sharing uh, your, your playlist and also for uh, sharing the final bow of Chris Claremont with us here. And uh, we will see you next time, Jody. Thank you so much. And I will send it over to the gold team, Uncanny X-Men, right now. No place to run, no place to run. The mutant has now begun. X-Men!